We'll start reading in Ephesians 3 1. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you therefore not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you which are your glory. Let's pray. God, as we come to your word now, we ask that you might give us a clear vision of your glory. Lord, we confess our small-mindedness. We confess our worldly uh, uh, glaucoma that, that clouds our vision so that we can't see you. We confess, Lord, we're so often looking in the mirror at ourselves and absorbed with ourselves and our needs and our issues that, that we don't stop to look at you and, and we don't realize that you should be the focus of our hearts. And so, God, we pray this morning that you would take all those things off our shoulders that we brought in here. Maybe it's concerns about finances and job. Give that to you. Maybe it's uh, family situations or tensions and relationships. Lord, we give those over to you. Maybe it's health concerns, God, or concerns about our children. We give that to you. Lord, maybe it's loneliness or discouragement. Lord, we give that to you. And we ask that you might take these things that cloud our vision and distract us so that we might see you clearly through your word this morning. And so, Lord, help us. Give us 2020 spiritual vision so that we might see you as you are. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Would you take out your sermon notes for a minute? Uh, this insert in your bulletin. I just want to remind you where we are in the sermon series. Uh, we are doing kind of a mini-series on missions, the theme of missions, and we're looking at missions from Ephesians chapter 3. Just to put it in context real quickly, uh, where it says Sunday morning schedule on the sermon notes. You remember about a month ago, or maybe you don't remember, <laughs> uh, we, we asked the question, what is missions? We're looking at missions from Ephesians 3, and we said that missions was going into the world to tell the greatest secret in the world in order to meet the world's greatest need. It's preaching the gospel so that people can be re reconciled to God. And then last, uh, uh, then the Sunday after that, I was uh, suffering for the Lord on the beaches of Florida, and Seth preached uh, on the question of who is a missionary. And we saw that a missionary is just a regular person. It's not some special person. It's a regular person 
who has been supernaturally called, shaped, and qualified by God's power to preach the gospel. Then we had our missions conference. We had Slave. Oh, Slave the best. I'm sorry, I guess, you know, Slave was just the best. He's the bomb. Uh, I love Slave. Um, I wish Slave would come here and preach every Sunday and I could just sit and soak it in. And then we had Danny Kroos next week. He dropped the bomb. Uh, <laughs> well, yeah, Danny Kroos, what you call full contact preaching. Uh, this is just <clears throat> right at you. He had a great sermon on, on God's grace. And then um, this Sunday we're looking at why we do missions. We're getting back to our questions here. And then next Sunday we'll look at how do we do missions. So the big question this Sunday, why missions? What is the purpose of global evangelization? Uh, what would motivate us to make the heavy commitment it takes to preach the gospel around the world? Because it is a heavy commitment. It really is. It's a heavy financial commitment. Uh, we're trying to raise a missions budget here so that we can support missionaries to go overseas. That takes money. Uh, we're trying to raise a couple hundred thousand dollars this year for our missions budget. Uh, you, you know those little green pledge cards that are in the, the pew racks? Uh, maybe, maybe you got one of those in the mail. I think I have one right here. Uh, they're in the pew racks in front of you. You may have them in the mail. They look like this. And what, what you do is you fill out, okay, this year I can give you know, $1,000 to missions. That's X number of dollars a week. And you fill that out. Our missions committee takes those, sort of pulls them together, and that's our missions budget for the year. But then you say, why would we do that? I mean, these are tough economic times. People are out of work. It's like, should I commit to giving to missions this year if I don't even know if I'm going to have a job six months from now? Uh, that's a big commitment to make. So before we make that kind of financial commitment to missions, we have to really answer the question, why are we doing this? What is most sacrifice? Or think about it from a missionary's perspective. They make incredible sacrifices when they go overseas. They leave their home country, their mother tongue, their native land. They, they leave America where they're familiar, they know how things work, and they go to another country where there's all different rules. None of them are spelled out explicitly. They have to learn another language, so for two or three years they feel like babies again because they've got to think about how to ask where's the bathroom, you know. You feel like an infant starting all over learning how to speak. It's humiliating. And you go to another country where there are diseases, where you can still get malaria, you know, when's the last time someone got malaria in America? Who knows? But they still get it in other countries. And, and a lot of times, those countries don't have the medical care that we have here in Boston. This is the best medical care in the world. People, missionaries go to other countries where there's a political unrest. Uh, a couple weeks ago, you remember hear about that missionary who was killed by a bomb blast in the Philippines. He was in the airport, and the bomb went off some, by some Islamic uh, extremist group, and, and it killed him. It's risks in living overseas as a missionary. Missionaries die overseas. Their children die overseas. And so it raises the question, why would they want to make that kind of sacrifice? What is the purpose of missions? What would motivate us to be committed to missions so that we would make those kinds of sacrifices to make it happen? Because you think of missions and our missions commitment is kind of like a tree. The storms of life are going to blow that tree around. That struggles are going to come, and it's going to blow our commitment. And if our reason for doing missions is shallow-rooted and superficial, those storms are going to come along and say, oh, that's not worth it, forget that. I give up. But if our reason, if our motivation sends its roots down deep and is anchored deep, then when the trials come to our missions efforts, we're going to just hold on because we know that we have roots that can make us weather the storm. So let's go back to the original question then. Why missions? Well, to answer the question, maybe we could 
just tweak it a little bit and say, what was God's purpose for missions? Because if we know God's reason for sending Paul out to preach the gospel to the nations, and if we can make that our purpose, we're going to have something that really lasts. And it's going to give us motivation for a lifetime commitment to missions. So what I want to do is look at Ephesians 3. And there in verse 10, Paul spells out explicitly why God kicked off the whole missions project. Why God gave the gospel to Paul and sent him out to preach the gospel. It's in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10. Actually, let's start reading at verse 8, just to give a little context. Paul says, Although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles. There's missions. To preach to the nations. Uh, uh, Sorry, I got lost there. The, uh, The unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. Here we go, verse 10. His intent... God's purpose was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. So why did God institute missions? It's so that His wisdom might be magnified. That His, his great aspect of His greatness, which is His wisdom, just might be exemplified. That God's... Uh, Wisdom might be put on display that a great spotlight might be shined on the wisdom of God so that everyone can see how wise and awesome God is. God did it for his own glory. That's why missions exists. Uh, I like that phrase there, the manifold wisdom of God. You see that? In other words, the many-sided, many-dimensional wisdom of God. When I read that phrase, I thought of like a diamond. You know how a diamond has lots of facets cut into it? Imagine a huge diamond in your mind, like... Uh, the Hope Diamond, or maybe one of the diamonds from the Crown Jewels in England. And then take that diamond in your mind and just maybe expand it. And let's pretend there was a diamond like this big, right? This huge diamond, so heavy you couldn't even lift it up. And it had hundreds and thousands of facets cut into it. You know, a diamond like that would just take your breath away. And so it's on display somewhere in some museum, and you come to see this diamond, and you can't even take it in all at once. You have to look at this side and see how the light goes through it, and you come around this side. It, it's so big that you could spend all day looking at it and studying all of its many facets and dimensions. And so I think of God's wisdom that way, that it's like a big diamond put on display for everybody to see. And so the purpose of missions is to display that beautiful glory, which is, which is God's wisdom. And notice how he does it in verse 10. His intent was that now, through the church the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Now, this is important. This means that the church, the mission of a church, is not the ultimate goal of missions. It's the penultimate goal. The ultimate goal is to display God's glory. The church is kind of like, um, it's like the pedestal that holds the diamond. It's like the display case in the jeweler's shop that holds the jewelry. You don't walk in and say, wow, what an incredible case. Look at this case. The glass is so clear. Wow, look at the the lights in this case. No, you say, look at the diamond. You don't even notice the case. And so that is the purpose of the church. The church doesn't exist. The ultimate goal of missions is not to save people to Christ, even though that's a goal. But it's to save people to Christ so that we might say, what an awesome God. What an awesome God. To display the greatness of God's wisdom. Maybe we should connect the dots a little bit uh, and specifically ask, how does 
the church's existence show off, showcase, highlight the wisdom of God? Uh, well, it's because through the church, God has done something that no one else has been able to do. He's brought together the world with all of its wisdom, down through the centuries, has sought to, to bring people together and unite people. Uh, there was the League of Nations. You remember that? Pfft, done. <laughs> that didn't work. Uh, today, there's a, a, an intentional program of multiculturalism in our schools, trying to kind of ram multiculturalism down people's throats, and people are gagging it back up, and it's causing them to fight against it. So instead of bringing people together, it's dividing people over that issue. And there's the UN, uh, with, with all the good things the UN has done. I mean, it's been sort of an abysmal failure these last several weeks as we, as we watched it. Regardless of what your view is about the war, the possible war, you know, the UN, instead of being something that's brought people together, it just seems to be a, an arena for political gamemanship. And so we say, what can bring people together? And the world, with all of its wisdom, with all of its best efforts, has not been able to unify us. Even though we're technologically connected through the internet and other means, we're still just as divided and uh, tribalized as ever before in human history. And so we ask, how can humanity be brought together? And God says, what the world has failed to do with its wisdom, I will do with my wisdom. And so through the gospel, get this, through the message of a crucified Messiah, the message of a guy hanging on a cross, through that message, God is going to create a new humanity. And he's going to do what human wisdom has never been able to do. You're like, a crucified Messiah? That's your plan, God? Yeah, that's my plan. Let's see if you can pull this off. You pulled it off. What? You are wise. You are amazingly wise. And so now there is a church composed of Jew and Gentile, or as Slave was telling us, composed of Serb and Croat. I mean, that's still a hot spot over there. Peace has not been achieved over there. We just saw this weekend the, uh, as the prime minister of Serbia was assassinated. There's still bad blood over there, even though officially, politically, things have leveled out a little bit. It's still a dangerous place. But what the UN is incapable to do, because they can't change people's hearts, God is doing through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And people are being brought together. And Slave was telling us about churches in Croatia where Serbs and Croats are worshiping with each other. How does this happen? Through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we say, God, you are wise. You are amazingly wise. We stand in awe of your wisdom. But notice, too, that the, the scope of this glory. God just doesn't want us to know about how wise he is. Look at verse 10. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. So God wants a cosmic display of his glory. He wants all the angels in heaven to know how great he is. And he wants all the demons that oppose him in the heavenly realms to know how great he is. He even wants Satan to know how great he is and as great as, great as wisdom is. Satan thought that when he crucified Christ, he had won. He didn't realize that was the beginning of the whole victory. That was the victory. And so then the church springs out of it. And, and so it's kind of like, I don't know, I imagine God just taking Satan's nose and just rubbing it in the church. Like, see? <laughs> Look what I did. You thought you were going to defeat me. You thought you were going to devour the human race. And I have recreated them. When you thought you won, I won. <laughs> you know, and just rubs his nose. You know, triumphs over his enemy. Puts his foot right on Satan's neck. And says, look it. Look at my wisdom. You must admit that I only am God. 
And so in the realms, God is going to show the greatness of his wisdom, even to his enemies. They're going to have to admit that he only is God. And so this is the purpose of missions, to bring God's glory and God's greatness to the forefront of our understanding and to make us stand in awe at the brilliant gem that is God. Missions is just a display case. God's glory is the diamond that we look at and say, oh, what an awesome God you are. What is, why do we do missions? To magnify the glory of God. If you're a note taker and you want to fill in that little box in the sermon notes, why do we do missions? To magnify the glory of God. Or as John Piper puts it so well, missions exists because worship doesn't. Missions exists because worship doesn't. It's to magnify God's glory so that all of us and all the powers in heaven, the angels and all of those powers that oppose God would see the greatness and wisdom of our God and they would have to confess it. <clears throat> in fact, this is a theme throughout the Bible. The reason God does everything he does is to exemplify, uh, magnify, showcase his glory. I look back at Ephesians 1, I, just to take a walk down memory lane here. Look at Ephesians 1, verses 3 to 14. Now, you remember we studied 1, 3 to 14, and we saw that... Uh, that Paul was describing the blessings we have in Christ through salvation. Remember that? And so we, we read through this, we studied this, took us about two months to read through all the blessings God's given us. But then sort of tucked into these blessings, every once in a while God tells the purpose for why he gave the blessings. And the purpose is to glorify himself. Look at verse uh, 5, actually right before verse 5. See that? Chapter 1, verse 5. In love... He predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with the pleasure and his pleasure and will. Here it is, verse 6. To the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In other words, the reason God saved me was not ultimately so that I would be saved, even though he wanted to save me. His ultimate goal was that by saving me, he would just magnify the diamond of his grace. He wants to show the world how gracious of a God he is. He wants to showcase himself. Or look in verse um, 11. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be what? For the praise of his glory. That's why, for the praise of God's glory. Or look uh, there in uh, verse 13, about halfway down. Having believed, you are marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. So you just get this theme running throughout Ephesians. The reason God has done all of these things to save us, the reason that missions exist to the nations is so that we might see how great God is and we might glorify him. Why do we do missions? What's the purpose? To magnify the glory of God. Missions exist because worship doesn't exist. <clears throat> so now let's uh, shift gears a little bit here and think about, practically speaking, what does that mean for us? If that is true, that that's the purpose of missions, what does that mean for us on a day-to-day -day level? <clears throat> and, and I guess I, I would think it would mean this, that if we're going to start getting involved in missions, and if we want to cultivate a lifelong commitment to missions, we have to get the right motivation. 
that's going to carry us over the long haul because it is costly. So we have to tap into the right motivation. We have to make God's motive our motive. Uh, we have to see that the purpose of missions is not, it doesn't come from a love for people, even though we should love people, but it comes from a love for God. That if we want to develop in our church and in our own lives a vision for world missions, it has to start with getting a vision of God's greatness. That missions begins when we really start worshiping the Lord. And it's as our vision of God expands that we become motivated to do world evangelization and to make all the sacrifices it's going to take in order to make that happen. So I want, giving that in mind, keeping that in mind, that, it, that really that's our motive for missions, I want to look at a great missions verse with you. Uh, it's in the book of Psalms. You might not think of this as a missions verse. Book of Psalms, chapter 37. As I said, this might not strike you as a missions text. Start missions is by focusing on God's greatness. It really is a missions verse. Psalm chapter 37. Missions begins when we are motivated by a desire to see God's greatness. So here's verse 4, Psalm 37, verse 4. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. This is the start of missions, when we delight ourselves in the Lord, when we get excited about God and his greatness, when God is what... Um, pumps us up, makes us happy, when thinking about God is what motivates us, carries us along, when that starts to happen, that's when we'll get a vision for foreign missions. That's what will motivate us long-term to make the sacrifices it takes for world evangelization. <clears throat> delight yourself in the Lord. Unfortunately, the problem is I typically delight myself in everything else besides the Lord. I, I, I know how to delight myself in other things. I, I delight myself in entertainment. I delight myself in sports. I delight myself in uh, food. <laughs> I delight myself in uh, job and projects and goals and causes. We make our happiness in relationships and money. You know, fill in the blanks. What do we delight ourselves in? I mean, there's so many things we could. It's not my heart affection on them, and they become uh, what is life to me. Uh, the Bible has a term for this. It's called idolatry. <laughs> That's what idolatry is. Idolatry isn't setting up a statue. That's just the outward manifestation. Idolatry is when the heart sets its affections on something other than God. And so I, you know, I, I set my delight on all those things, but as I do that, what happens is my delight in the Lord shrinks, and my vision of God shrinks. It, it's not that God shrinks. God never shrinks. I can't shrink God, but my, my estimation of God shrinks, and my delight in God shrinks, and, and I start developing a spiritual myopia, and he sort of gets smaller and smaller until finally God becomes uh, uh, one of these. <laughs> this is a Pez dispenser. <laughs> and, and I fall into what we might call Pez dispenser Christianity. Where this is, well, this is Lisa Simpson. Uh, but imagine, imagine like, I don't know, I don't know if this is blasphemous. Imagine like Jesus' face on there. And, and I just sort of, you know, keep my pocket. And, and that's all he is. I mean, he's not the king of kings and the lord of lords. He's just kind of, you know, something I keep to keep me happy and and if I get stressed out or have a bad week, ooh, I pull them out and, oh, you know, okay, I'm feeling better. You know, thank you. And, and he, he just kind of helps me. He's my personal thing. And, you know, you have your personal thing that helps you through the week. And I have my personal thing that helps me through my tough spots. And, and we all have our own little personal 
gods and the little thing we keep in our pocket. Mine has a Jesus head on it. And maybe yours has something else head on it. And that's all God becomes. And he's sort of a fallback if things really go bad. And the reason he becomes that to me, wow, this is choking me up. <laughs> I didn't, I've never experimented with peasant preaching, so. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, and God just becomes smaller and smaller until finally, you know, he's not inspiring me anymore. He's just kind of there to fit my needs. But when I begin to delight myself in the Lord, and I get happy about God, and I start to see, wow, this is an awesome God. And I realize that Jesus isn't just my personal support mechanism. He's the king. No, no, no. He's the king of all the kings. Jesus is the one who said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's who he is. God is the one who is from everlasting to everlasting. He is the one, not who's in my pocket, I'm in his pocket. The universe is in his back pocket, and it only exists because he keeps it in his pocket. And if God were to take it out of his pocket and throw it away, it'd just go poof, because he's God. And when I start to see his patience with me, and I begin to see the greatness of his mercy and his love, and I begin to ponder how awesome God is, then my heart is filled up with God, and I say, oh, you are an awesome God. And then I look at the world around me, starting with me, my own life, and working outwards, I say, this world is not worshiping you, God. It does not make sense. Look who you are and look at this world. I've got to tell the world about you. I've got to tell my friends about you. They've got to know who you are. They're not worshiping you. This is totally illogical. I've got to tell the South Shore about you. I gotta, you know, and, and we start dreaming. And, and then we start praying, Lord, give me my sister. Give me my brother. Bring them to Christ. Lord, give me the south shore of Boston. I want it for Christ. Lord, you know, missionary says, Lord, give me the Uyghur people of Central Asia. Lord, give them to me. Let them come to Christ. We delight ourselves in the Lord, and He gives us the desires of, his heart, of our hearts. You know, I have asked the Lord for the south shore of Boston. That's what I want. And I'm waiting for it, hopefully, because He gives us the desires of our heart when we delight ourselves in Him. I want the South Shore of Boston. That's what I want. I don't know if it's going to be this year. I don't know if it's going to be 20 years from now. That's what I want. <laughs> That's what I've asked God for many times, that He would give us the South Shore and just deliver it into the hands of Christ. Is the South Shore under the authority of Christ? Yes! So God, plant churches, start ministries, save people. Let the name of Jesus Christ be exalted on the South Shore. The people all around us would just, you know, you say the name Jesus, yeah, Jesus, yeah. I know Jesus. May his name be exalted among the nations. And so that, that's where missions comes from. It's from that expansive vision of God as I learn to delight myself in who he is. And that will naturally give rise to missions. Okay, we're almost out of time. Practical. Let's end with a little practical note here. Uh, something to take home, something I could take home too. Okay, so if that's the case, if missions arises from a delight in God and God's glory and God's greatness, how do I go about delighting in the Lord? What does that mean? I mean, it sounds kind of spiritual, delight yourself in the Lord. Mm -mm, but you know what? How do you do that? I mean, I know how to delight myself in a car. I get a car magazine. I look at the car. I fantasize about myself driving in the car with the top down. You know, I go to a, 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 a place. I sit in the car. I sit in the leather. I, 
smell the new car smell. I take it for a test drive. I buy the car. I wash the car. You know, I show it off to my friends. That's how you delight in a car. I know how to do that. I know how to delight in a pizza. I know how to delight in a movie, okay? Oh, I watch the movie. I enjoy the movie. I watch it again. I tell you all about it. You know, not that I ever do that. Um, but <laughs> so I know how to delight in all these things. But how do I delight in God? What, what is that? How do you do that? And so let me just get really practical for my own sake, because I have to have things sort of brought down for me. Um, how do we delight ourselves in the Lord? The first way we can delight ourselves in the Lord is by studying his word. That's, that's you have, in fact, let me say this, you can't delight in the Lord if you're out of the word. Because God shows his glory most clearly through the clear window of his word. God trumpets his majesty most loudly through the horn of his word. It is through the word of God that we know him. And, and I know a lot of people say, oh, he's talking about Bible reading again. I, I struggle with Bible reading. I don't know how to do it. I don't know where to start. I've always had a hard time with this. Look, do what George Mueller did. George Mueller said that he would read the Bible in the morning, not until he accomplished a certain amount of chapters, but he would read the Bible until he was happy in the Lord. That was his goal. He would keep reading the Bible until he was just so happy with God and happy with what God was. Maybe that's one verse, maybe that's three chapters, I don't know. And, and I've used that in my own reading. I, I, don't, I don't have any goals when I read the Bible devotionally. I just read it until I'm happy with God. So delight yourself in the Lord. Start by just reading his word, and God will reveal himself to you through it. Get in a Bible study. Maybe you really struggle to study the Bible. Hang out with some other Christians. A Bible study is kind of a form of accountability. You meet with other Christians, you study the Bible together. And then find for yourselves godly men who preach from the Bible and listen to them. And I, I pray and I strive and I stay up late and I get up early to try to be that for you. But don't limit yourself to me. Uh, you know, listen to guys on the radio. Get sermon tapes of people. Listen to Charles Stanley, Jack Hayford, Alistair Begg. I mean, there's so many national preachers on the radio. There's Christian radio. Anywhere, anytime you can, listen to good biblical sermons taught by godly people. Because for some reason, in God's sovereignty, he has ordained that his glory will be clearly revealed through the preaching ministry of the gospel. So find preachers who preach the word and just soak it up. And I'm telling myself that too. I need to just soak up good preaching because it's all the word. So the first way to delight yourself in God is to feed on the word. second way to delight in the Lord is to pray. To pray. After Mueller would get himself happy on God, got his God fixed, was all stoked up about God, he would close his Bible and he would start praying. And I've sort of adopted this pattern in my own devotional life. It's really been helpful. Because when I start praying, I'm all fired up. My mind's on the right track. I'm on the right trajectory. So read the Bible, get stoked on God, then just start praying. And you'll, just, you'll be amazed at how much energy you have for prayer and how you're focused on the right things. A third way that we can delight ourselves in the Lord is to worship. And when I say worship, I'm specifically thinking of singing. That element. Worship is more than singing, but think, specifically think about singing. Every Christian in America should have a couple worship CDs. You should have a couple worship CDs that you can pop into your CD player, your tape player, eight track, I don't know, whatever you have. <laughs> and you know what? I don't care what it is. I don't care if it's the Gaithers. I don't care if you're rocking out with Third Day. Whatever it is that you listen to, have a couple worship. Don't just, you know, don't limit yourself just to Christian music. There's a lot of amazing music out there that broadens your horizons, but but definitely have some worship CDs. How many times have I popped in a worship CD 
and got my focus on God like right back to where it should be. Last week, I don't know why, I forget what it was. Probably that's how important it was. I forgot what it was. I was stressed out about something. I was in the car with my kids, driving them back somewhere, and my daughter in the back says, Dad, hit, you know, turn on the music. And so I just hit play. I didn't know what CD was in. And it was like a little kid's tape. I'm like, oh, little kid's music. It's just not my thing. Uh, but but it, then it, listen, it was little kid's praise music. Like little kids singing, you know, I will worship. You know, and they're singing all these songs that we sing. 